Hello and welcome to Between the Lines, taking you behind the local news, food, theaters, and more in Rhode Island. Today, Bradley Vanderstad sits down with Sean Carlson, a writer here at Motif, to discuss his experiences with the publication, as well as a recent article he wrote about art in the public view. Between the Lines is sponsored by R1 Indoor Carding, the Trinity Brewhouse Beer Garden, and Graysale Brewing of Rhode Island. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Between the Lines, uh, with Motif Magazine's Between the Lines podcast. My name is Bradley Vanderstad. I'm the assistant editor of the publication. Today, we have Sean Carlson to talk about some of his contributions to Motif, specifically in the May issue, uh, Art in the Public View, talking about street art um, and talking to a lot of the... Um, local leaders in, in the art scene. But first, Sean, why don't you introduce yourself? Tell us how, tell us about your career and how you came to Motif. Sure, yeah, thank you, Bradley. It's wonderful to be here and uh, pleased to have the chance to talk with you. Um, my, my introduction to Motif is kind of uh, quite accidental in some ways. Um, I guess I, I grew up uh, north of Boston and my familiarity with alternative publications was probably through the Boston Phoenix and Providence Phoenix when I came down here. Uh, I ran a website on independent music in New England for several years in high school and college. And so we'd come down to Providence for shows, uh, was familiar with you know, what the city was, what the music scene was like, but wasn't deeply, you know, of course, Eastside Pockets, you know, you come grab, grab nice. a yeah. uh, falafel is <laughs> kind of a, a, a prerequisite for a visit to, to Providence. My wife and I ended up quite surprisingly flying in and out of Providence on these direct flights that Norwegian Air had for a period of time between Providence and Ireland. And we got a chance to see my family there for about $89 each way. And I mean, you couldn't take Amtrak to you know New York for 89 bucks at mm-hmm. that point in time. Mm-hmm. And we kept flying in and out of here. My parents were north of Boston would come down and either collect us or uh, we'd lived in New York for about 10 years and we were traveling. And every time we came through, it was just like we had this this kind of tantalizing moment with the city where it's like, oh, that, that was a great meal that we stopped at at, um, you know, Apsara for a bite to eat on the way before heading home. Or mm-hmm. we remember meeting a friend who'd moved down from uh, from Boston uh, and we met at Seven Stars before a flight. And we were just talking about like life in, in around Providence. My wife had worked here for four summers uh, running a training program that took place at Brown. And we both just had kind of independently nice experiences in a place that was artistic, creative, delicious. And yeah, we um, we ended up as we were expecting our second daughter uh, needing to be somewhere. We were like on a bus in Estonia and uh, as my wife entered her second prim- trimester and she's like, I think we need to decide where we're going to be. And we were like, why don't we end up in Providence, you know, three hours uh, by train from New York, three and a half hours. and get up to Boston an hour, close enough to family, feels like you have your kind of independent space and like we found this little secret uh, of a state. And we came here, we rented, uh, we subletted for a few months, we rented for a while. And um, while our oldest daughter uh, was about a year and a half, she was in a Rock-A-Baby course, which is, uh, if if you know, you know. Yeah, if you don't, I do not. <laughs> it is three musicians who, um, basically are like exceptional musicians that play music for kids that makes every parent in the room happy. And so they'll like have 
humorous themes. They'll rock out. You'll have like an Aerosmith cover uh, <laughs> of something that's like about a map for children okay. or, you know, the puppet comes out and breaks into a David Bowie reference. And so it's kind of like gotcha. everybody's happy. It's like, okay, a concert yep. for kids, but also for adults. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, we were at the um, at the Rock a Baby performance at the Jewish Community Center um, up on the east side of Providence. Uh -huh. And then afterwards, I was just talking to them about music. And uh, I don't know, sometimes we talked about writing. I do writing professionally. And then all of a sudden afterwards, someone came out and I was like, oh, um, did I hear you talking about music and writing? Uh, just trying to introduce myself. And this is Emily Olson, the former mm -hmm. editor of Motif. And she's like, if you are ever open to writing for us, we'd love to talk with you. And so I said, yeah, of course, I'd love to. And the first piece that I worked on for Motif was a curtain raiser for a Tom Waits tribute festival that was happening before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And it was just such a fun chance to look at the history of the city and the history of Tom Waits and his meaning and his legacy, mm. uh, the genres that he unpacks. And uh, I don't know, have kind of written for you ever since. So yeah. it's been, been uh, a fun, fun series of being able to contribute about different parts of arts and entertainment and, yeah. and around this place that we've now lived for just over three years and you know very happy so when was that sean when was the rock baby concert that would have been fall of 2019 2019 yeah okay all right so not terribly long ago not terribly long ago but in in the accordion years of this uh pandemic yeah. it's either incredibly <laughs> it feels long like forever or ago yeah. just the other day so it's <laughs> right? hard to tell yeah truly yeah well said accordion years i yeah. like that but now sean you stand out among motif writers because most of our writers are, are great community advocates and, and love getting involved and write because they're passionate about the topic that they're interested in covering uh but you have a long career in, in writing and journalism could you tell us a little bit more about that i'm um, sure i mean my I'm, i've loved writing ever since i was quite young uh you know contributed op-eds and opinion pieces. I mean, I remember when I was at uh, Boston University, I wrote um, an essay uh, on the Boston burrito scene, which <laughs> I would like to think that if the internet had been a little bit more web 2 <laughs> at that time, that it would have uh, been one of those like local viral hits. Instead, yeah, yeah, yeah. like one, one blog at MIT picked it up and was like, this is yeah, cool. this is good. Yeah, we liked it. Okay. Um, but those were the print days. Um, you know, frankly, I just, I've loved reading and um, I, my work uh, professionally, right now I run my own consultancy. I provide editorial and, and um, copywriting strategy work. I think a lot of organizations or companies tend to think that because they know how to talk or they know how to put words on a page that they also know what they're trying to say. Mm -hmm. And I think oftentimes the value that an editorial lens on something has can actually clarify what a business's purpose is or, or what it isn't. You know, I think a lot of organizations really fail to do a great job of understanding what they're even providing. It's like, well, I did this thing. And it's like, well, that doesn't mean anything to, mm -hmm. you know, the person you want to use it. So like, right. how can we get there? And so um, professionally, I got my start really working with Google and their communications office and then ended up working uh, through with them for several years and uh, developing some journalism training modules and running the news industry relations portion of uh, the work. And that was a, a fascinating insight into helping journalists basically um, in newsrooms. Uh, there's a lot of you know business parties at, uh, within media organizations. Mm -hmm. So better understanding how they can use technology in their reporting. But then for me myself also, I just valued 
understanding how the craft worked. Like, you know, especially living in New York, I'd go to literary events, you know, listen to, you know, discussions of how a poem came together or, you know, somebody reading from their work or discussing uh, the impact of their work. And so that whole whole journey, uh, basically, I, I've written for a number of publications over the years, but never on a, a consistent basis. And so working for writing for Motif as kind of a, I'd say a semi-regular contributor uh, has been the most consistent I've contributed. And I think one of the things that's been great is A, having deadlines. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, there's something it. magical about having to get something done because mm -hmm. there's a lot of great ideas out there that just still sit out there until, uh, until you know, someone you said you got to hand it in by this time. Yeah, yep, uh -huh. exactly. Uh -huh. So that's that's kind of my amble through um, through this work. But, okay, uh, cool. Yeah. All right, great. Well, thanks for bringing all that experience to the magazine. We sure, appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, let's talk more about the piece itself. So it's called Art in the Public View, Walking Through Rhode Island Street Scenes. You open it up by talking about this piece of street art that you came across um, over by Mills Tavern on North Main Street. And it talks about you seeing put some art on this wall. What what did, what spoke to you about that? Why was that your opening? Well, this, uh, just the context then, this was a, a piece that I think you and as an editorial lead for the publication had also desired to have in the piece. So this came about, um, sometimes the pieces I've written, I've kind of come up with the original idea and pitched mm -hmm. it to you. Sure, sure. This is one that kind of came the other direction, just so the, the readers kind of understand that portion of how the sausage is made. Yeah. And so one of the things I think is um, both, it isn't about what I think, but one of the most important things any reader can probably recognize is that the opening of a piece typically determines whether they care enough to keep going. Yeah, that's very important. One editor that I'd done some uh, some work with years ago had um, tipped me off with the idea that your opening should be something of a light that shines on what you want the rest of the piece to do. Mm. And I think the struggle with this piece is like, I think we talked about this, but the the history and even the present of public art, of, of what constitutes public art, of legal public art, of illegal public art, mm -hmm. of financially supported public art, of art that is allowed to be done and you get the benefit of feeling good that you contributed to it, but like, you know, there's not financing behind it. All those deserve a book, I'm sure, in their own yeah, right. And so much there are people who've, um, who've written dissertations about this. You know, I've read a couple um, assessments of, uh, there's one uh, I wanted to work into it, but uh, I left out because there's only so many words you can use. Yeah. To this point, one of the struggles I had was where to begin on something that's so vast. And so when I was thinking about the form that I wanted this piece to take, I really started looking through my photo collection of snapshots I've taken of art in Providence and around Rhode Island since coming here. And that one snapshot came across mm -hmm. and it hit me. It's like, first of all, that's such a clear, put some art on this wall. It's such a, a proclamation, yeah. an assertion, a declaration, um, uh -huh. an instruction. And then when I was thinking about it, I think the thing that sat with me, um, I take it back actually one step. Years ago, I was in Poland uh, in Krakow, which is this incredibly, you know, kind of entrancing, almost fairy tale city that is both so classic, uh, preserved, survived, as architecture throughout much of the Second World War um, with regards to how many people suffered um, and were lost. That's a, a separate um, and horrifying part of the city mm -hmm. and the country's history. 
In terms of the art, you have this like super modern cultural mecca that is also sitting in this you know, beautiful place. And so why am I going from Providence to Krakow? Is that there is this one piece of street art, a mural on a wall. And you know, this is back before there were digital cameras. So it was a digital camera, but it wasn't uh, stuck to your phone. Mm. And so <laughs> I was taking this picture of this beautiful mural that just seems so assertive. And then in the far corner, I saw that it was sponsored by a shoe company. And I think one of the things that struck me at that time, and you probably come across yourself, you see these murals all over the cities and you recognize like, in many ways, murals can be a new format of advertising, mm -hmm. right? You don't think twice when you see a billboard up on a highway that has, I don't know, anything on it. And so this is sort of like another canvas that advertisers have found ways. Sometimes those can be great because they're great art. Yeah. Sometimes. If you don't like the company behind it, it doesn't matter if it's great art, the motivation is suspect. Mm -hmm. And I thought that this particular line to bring it from Krakow back to Providence, because that Krakow moments really stuck with me, is like I've kind of had a curious, but also semi-skeptical lens of the motivation behind mm. some of these pieces right, right, right. Okay. Um, ever since. And so that, that prompted for me, put some art on this wall, was kind of like a joke was this was this actually like a RISD recruiting call was <laughs> yeah. this was this done by a local business was it uh was even the construction like uh because there was before that there was this like incredible lattice work of chopped signs that was so yeah. you know discombobulated so yeah. I thought it was a helpful frame for saying like sometimes art we don't know its motivations and there are ways of kind of getting to the heart of that hopefully articles like this can contribute but i mean you know it can be i know sometimes there are qr codes along you know the side of the walls um mm -hmm. avenue concept released a what i would consider a very useful uh, mobile app that has kind of an encyclopedic uh, and geolocated knowledge of the artist story and the artist statement for the different pieces, gotcha. not only in Providence, but you know, further afield as well. Yeah. Um, and so anyway, long story short is, I thought that statement spoke to both the, the drive for art in a public space, but then also the murkiness of what constitutes it, who's able to do it, right. why and how. Yeah, fabulous. I love that, like, who's asking for it? Mm -hmm. I didn't even consider that. Put some art on this wall. Who who wants this, you know? And a, a lot of different parties do for a lot of different reasons. And it doesn't matter, right? Like, because yeah. if some, some people would look at that and be like, well, the motivation of the artist is insignificant. And I could imagine some mm. people walking by that and saying, oh my gosh, that that's like, that's graffiti. That's that's distracting. Yeah. It's dirtying something that was already pretty dirty. It's not like yeah. a bland gray painted wall at the bottom of a unkempt space, uh, which you know I found through property records was city owned. I mean, I didn't even know that. Mm -hmm. or, or sorry, state owned. It's yeah. a state owned property, mm -hmm. um, not city. But yeah, it, it, some people probably wouldn't mind what the motivation is. Only is the art good, and others would very much care. Like art is only good based on the motivation of yes. what's behind it. What is it trying to do, or move you to to do or think? Right, made tangible, whatever that expression is, made tangible, right? Yeah, yeah interesting. And I, that kind of brings us to the close of your article, which we can skip back to the rest of it sure. in a second. But yeah. uh, the close of your article, you're talking about the difference between legal art and illegal art, jury selection. But who is the jury, right? So who decides what makes art appropriate or inappropriate? And what 
who should we be arresting for art and who should we be rewarding for art, you know? So um, can you yeah. speak a little bit more about that? You talked a little bit about it in your closing. It's interesting. Again, I feel like this is one of those where I, I feel like there's a depth that I would have loved to also have explored more. Like that itself mm. um, is probably worthy of its own feature. Yeah, right. Um, you know, I mean, I think that if you ask a lot of people, you know, do they want their home or their business covered in somebody else's words without their approval, that'd probably be a very um, unsatisfying uh, invitation. You know, it costs money. I mean, uh, you know, someone tags your doorstep and either if you care or you have to clean it or your owner does, there's obviously some um, motivations that people who, I mean, they, they can be tenants. It's not sometimes these feel like they're framed about like, you know, the homeowners with their, their values. It's just like some people don't want that around yeah. and whether that's good or bad, someone can disagree on. I think that what was striking in this is that, you know, somebody in, in certain places that have abandoned space, right? That somebody can come and do something that is sanctioned legally through an organization that has finessed all of the insurance coverage to make sure that there's no liability against it, that artist got hurt crafting right. it, that the building owner or the city's obligation of that building or whatever it is has given the right of way and the approval. Uh, even looking through, again, the city's um, filings and, or the, the public, public documents that are available um, at the appropriate search between the agreement that Avenue Concept and yes. City of Providence has. Yeah, I mean, they, they literally get reviewed by the police department, the fire department. Verizon has to sign off to make sure as a utility that there's no obligation. So like all uh, of those levels also come with costs. Right. And they also come with like, you have to have a wherewithal or a familiarity mm -hmm. of like how you pitch to get into that. Obviously, as Providence's star has risen in the uh, public art world, it's more demanding. You get more uh, applications from within the city, outside of the city. Um, and then you have moments where like, um, I think the summer of 2020, uh, especially following the Black Lives Matter protests within, uh, within Providence proper, you know, there was art over a lot of boarded up buildings, like literal art. Yeah. I don't mean like just tagging, you know, there were, there were drawings and sketches and things that could be absolutely stand-ins for what somebody else is financially supporting mm. on the place right next to it. Right. And so. I'm not the right person to kind of adjudicate which is and isn't the right thing to do, but I do right. think that there's a, a conversation to be had about like, is art a statement, right? Mm -hmm. Is it is it driven? I mean, when you look at street art around the world, uh, you know, in Colombia, it was in reaction to some of the, the civil war and the uh, government policies. You have, uh, I know Banksy's become like a yeah. cause celebre in his own own realm. Um, but I mean, you know, the a lot of his early works, assuming it's a he given the kind of unfamiliarity of who this individual yeah. actually is. Mm. But, um, you know, there's a lot of a lot of politics wrap, wrapped up in it. And I think there's a, an interesting question of whether politics that's sort of like organized by the city or by a political sphere is itself political or is it yeah if you're can you be critical within that well, if you are is the city 
approving the critique? Do you want the city? Yeah, well, is there a censorship question, component? Because we have the Shepherd Ferry's Providence Industrial Mural mm -hmm. is drawn, has a lot of influence from communist Russia, mm -hmm. right? All the colors, all the red, all the rise of workers. It's a very social, social realist kind of assertion and a lot of his work feels like it's anchored in that. Right. And so if, if Verizon and the Providence Police Department were both responsible for approving that when it was up, I don't now, know. No, I don't think, uh, just to be clear from what I saw, and this is, I don't think that they have right of approval or first right of approval on like what actually goes up oh, okay. on the walls. I okay, think they're okay, reviewing, okay. as far as I understand, uh, that they're reviewing the risk of there being art in that space. Hmm. So like, are there complications or okay, legalities? Like or, okay. And again, that's it's more that there is still a, a you know, betting or process of that. So, hmm. but um, yeah, I mean, look, there, there are some incredible pieces of art and I don't want any of the discussion of what is and isn't sanctioned or approved to also take away from the beauty that many of these murals are. I mean, there are people who live locally who are doing this work and then there are people who've traveled from all over the world to do this work mm -hmm. and i mean i think uh providence has clearly seen that there's been a touristic impact from this and oh, you know i mean you for one i think probably love having people come yes. discover the city and, absolutely and kind of love it for you know it's like you come in you you get great food a great coffee you get to see street art you leave and i mean we have people friends from all over have been like oh my god i love providence it's yeah. like so creative yeah so i think there's capital. a great embrace of that i do think there's just yeah this this question i mean i remember one morning i was out early like you know 5 a.m when my second daughter was born and uh was just walking with her along the water and there was a uh, an artist who came uh rather you know surreptitiously in the the pre-dawn hours of uh you know, sticking up the wheat paste of his work. And a uh, wheat paste, for those who aren't familiar, is basically like a poster that has kind of a glue, a lacquer on the back that gets pressed up against uh, whatever the object is, a board, a sign, a okay. wall. And uh, one of the motivations that I understood about this, and again, maybe I'm, I'm not exactly right on this, but different, different cities to get to the legality, if you write on something, you can be charged per word. And essentially at a certain point, uh, those misdemeanors become a felony. Wow. Whereas if you stick a piece of like a sticker or a, a glued paper, a wheat paste as it's called, on a wall that is not sanctioned, that it is solely one felony. And again, I'm not a lawyer, okay. I might be, imperfect yeah. on the precision sure. of that but uh, as far as i understand from um, uh, some street art conversations in new york and everything that was kind of the distinction of why you'd see that but it was just interesting because the the work that was put up was a, a rather kind of haunting it looked like it belonged on like a metal album um you know cover and it was just a really nice piece of art but it was clearly not approved to be there but also important enough for this person to present that work in that space, right. whether it's an act of uh, defiance. defiance or, uh, you know, just, you know, <laughs> singularly juried art. Yeah, um, singularly juried. Who knows? Yeah, judge and jury. Yeah. yeah so <laughs> anyway, I touch on a little bit of this, uh, you know, with, with a few hundred words, you can only do so much. Right. Of but course. I do look forward to the academic who, uh, and I did try to reach out to RISD uh, to see if there were any faculty members who were particularly uh you know deep or familiar with the 
the bigger landscape of like Providence's history of street art, um, because I certainly also, I, I, we talked about this as well, Bradley, but the, um, you know, I allude to the Creative Capital uh, Place branding campaign that right. started in 2007, but I also don't individually have a lot of exposure to what the scene was like before that Previous period that. of time. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so it's hard to tell uh, exactly what has and hasn't changed over the course of history. And, um, you know, when I'm writing outside of my, my, my work work, there's only so much digging you can do in time for that deadline. So right, yeah, sure. as much as I would have loved to trace back to the, the art scene <laughs> the of the, the 1700s and, <laughs> right. and there were, there were amazing murals. I mean, I, just some of the, the stuff that I found, I mean, there were murals that again, getting into the politics of it, uh, you know, in New York during the uh, First World War, there were murals drawn to support, uh, you know, like European campaigns and refugee aid associations and people would pay to see murals in stores or they'd be designed. So like none of the stuff is entirely new. Right. Um, and I think one of the benefits of a place like Providence that has such a deep history of manufacturing and industry is that you also have these legacies of former designs and logos sitting on walls in plain view that, you know, frankly are still continued pieces of art. They just are now seen as kind of a historic uh, piece decontextualized. Right. Yeah. 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 Very cool. So. Yeah, super. All right. I wanted to ask you too. So you spoke to a whole bunch of important people here. Uh, you spoke to Marta Martinez of Rhode Island Latino Arts. You spoke to Yara Thorne of the Avenue Concept. And you spoke to representatives from the city of Pawtucket. Kind of along the lines of what we've been talking about. Do you think that um, inst when institutions get involved, that that would change the art that gets produced? Because then it becomes less of a grassroots sort of effort as we understand street art to be, and more of a top-down, juried, approved, uh, all these sort of things. How do you think that that affects the art that it gets produced? I'd say that uh, from what I can tell, of the people that I spoke with, I think very few of them would see that they are have that they would have an effect on changing what is created, right? Mm, I think okay. most of them see it as basically creating a, a legal and approved, like allocating the space that exists for art to be done, right? And um, I think you see that uh, some of it is very straightforward, like utility boxes. Providence has for a long time been at kind of the forefront of just, I mean, you can say prettifying them, you could say uh, just designing them, giving them personality, a pop of fun. Um, but, you know, Pawtucket's been doing similar. They have an active campaign right now. There's some beautiful work done in Warren, Rhode Island as well uh, around utility boxes. So there are these spaces that like, if you're walking around historically and you see just a, a utility box that says maybe the name of the utility and some rust on it, like you probably don't dwell on the inherent beauty or statement of that. And right. if anything, it's a statement of, I don't know, how our utility structures are, you know, visible and invisible at the same time. And, mm. you know, you can kind of take you can it find you something, yeah. find some, <laughs> yeah. some, some uh, exploration. <laughs> Uh, but I think in this case, I think that the the motivation here is largely that uh, you know they're they're all working hard to bring local artists and in some cases national and international artists to give them spaces that otherwise would not be afforded to them. Uh, yeah, and if they were afforded or claimed in the middle of the night, they might also be taken down immediately uh, or 
something. I, I'm, I, you know, I would have loved to talk to Shepard Ferry about what it was like doing, you know, his artwork uh, years ago. But that would be a, a, again a, a separate feature in its own right. And I know he's spoken with a lot of other people over the years who've reported on this in Rhode Island and elsewhere. So, you know, it's nothing particularly new. Um, yeah, I think that they would. Uh, they'd all say that they're they're doing a. a, a really important job of giving a, a canvas to artists. I think the just un, unanswered question or question that uh, I think is worth looking at is, you know, the more that there is popularity around anything, the more competitive it becomes. If you have, you know, 10 open spaces, you know, you can either grow the number of spaces you have, or you can reduce the percentage of applicants that get selected for right. those spaces. And I think it's been fantastic to see organizations like the Avenue Concept, like Pawtucket City Council. I'm sure the same is true with the Providence Arts Center, uh, a Providence Arts Council. Right. You know, AS220 was at the forefront of a lot of this stuff years ago. Um, New Urban Arts, uh, mm -hmm. they've done fewer murals recently, but you still see the legacy work there. You know, I think there's a lot of focus on creating these spaces. And so, yes, it's fantastic that the more spaces they can secure and take the burden of liability or mm -hmm. of even supply costs or at times provide, is it a stipend or financing or even just advocacy for the artist? Only a good thing. Right. I think the question still just becomes is like, I I'm, I'm hope organizations like what you saw with Rhode Island Latino Arts um, organization uh, really just championing local youth in particular, who are probably in many ways the least likely to have as many supportive canvases available right. to them. Right. Uh, but really to channel that and create opportunities to empower, celebrate, encourage yeah. youth who, who live in Providence and around Rhode Island. Um, and I think this is true in every city. I don't think it's unique to here. Um, but I think that if there are going to be these programs and campaigns, you can't on one hand say like, hey, we're such celebrants of the arts and like, look at all we do to bring people through. And then it's like, you know, you've got someone who might have a gift, but you tell her or you tell him or you tell them that they're not allowed to they're, or, they're, or they're, they did it wrong the first time right. or they're trying to explore something. And like, there's not a space. There's no way you can do that. You know, if you want to yeah. do it, do it on a piece of paper and you're like, well, but like, how do I test my canvas? Um, so I do think the more that we can find either formal residencies or just community engagements and, um, you know, kind of channel some of that energy and identify it at a younger stage. I think, uh, you know, it doesn't even have to be, we talk about like it's teenage years. I think this can be young with kids at a young yeah. age and, and hopefully is like, you know, I come around Providence with my kids or as, uh, you know, other youth grow up and they see these works that can become a part of the understanding that this stuff is a way of, um, you know, asserting a story in a public space and yeah. understanding maybe avenues of, of people and lives that you never would have had been exposed to, um, right. you know, on an individual level. So, yeah, we have so many talented kids, you know, we have so many talented kids and it's so important to give folks an outlet because they can go any way, you know, you can either choose to support what talents they can bring and mm -hmm. give them outlet or you can say no we don't like that and they're going to say okay well i'm going to do this now and you're definitely not going to like that and right i mean now. if you if you uh i think the surefire way to get someone to do what you 
don't want them to do is to tell them no. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. We have to like reframe that as a society. I think we get I think, that. I think you're right. Yeah, we get that backwards. It's not unique to art alone. Right. Yeah. Yeah. In so many aspects, right? In so many aspects. But Sean, you brought along some of these books. So um, for our listeners at home, Sean uh, also has written so many different different types of art interpretations, and that includes uh, translation art, which often we don't give enough credit to. So Sean, could you tell us more about, about the reviews that you had written? Yeah, yeah. Um, I've been really happy over the past couple of years to be able to uh, try to bring a little bit more of a lens as well to the literary arts that happen here in Rhode Island. Uh, I think, you know, one of the things that's probably, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong here, but I think it feels like a lot of Rhode Islanders are already quite familiar with what happens here. And it's sort of like taken as a matter of fact. It's like, oh yeah, of course, so-and-so is like an artist or writer and that's what they do. Like, it's not a big deal. It's just like they're my neighbor. But it is. Um, but I think, you know, we, we do have some just remarkable talent here, both historic and uh, current. And I think certainly there's been some movement during the pandemic years and before that, um, some of it having to do with housing costs and affordability, uh, although that is increasingly changing in the other direction for a lot of people. Um, but I think that the, the idea of looking at the literary scene here in, these are not in the latest issue, but they are online as kind of consistent with the latest issue, is that uh, one of the largest uh, literary organizations in the US, PEN America, has an annual awards night or celebration to look at certain works, including uh, their annual translation prize. And for the past two years, a Providence resident has won the, the prize, and that's been, you know, Fantastic. Uh, last year it was um, Emma Ramadan from who was one of the co-founders of uh, Riff Raff Bookstore in Olneyville. Oh, great. Um, her translation, uh, I forget the name of the book right now, so uh, sorry about that. <laughs> okay. um, but uh, I'll come back. She's done so many translations, it's hard to keep tabs on which mm. one was the, the, the recipient of it. And then this year it's um, uh, Julia Sanchez's translation of Migratory Birds by Mariana Oliver, who's a, a young writer in Mexico City. And yeah, I, I put together, this is actually, I didn't realize Julia had even moved to Rhode Island, but I was doing an interview with uh, Alta L. Price, who is a finalist uh, for their work on a German translation. And uh, they'd attended RISD and learned German at Brown back in the 90s. And then at the very end of completing that, uh, they'd mentioned to me, uh, oh, and I've, you know, I'm part of a collaborative with Julia, who's of course this like fantastic Providence-based translator. And I was like, yeah. wait a second. What? Yeah. So of course I apologized, uh, reached out to her, and she was very generous with uh, opening up about her own family journeys, yeah. um, which you can read on on the site. But I think what's, what's remarkable about this work, I mean, it's very, uh, accessible, you know, a couple hundred pages. Uh, let's see where we're at here. 122 pages, so not even a couple hundred pages. It's really a book length essay and is part of the series from an Oakland, California publisher uh, called Transit Books uh, that tries to bring long form essayist or essay style writing to a larger audience. But it's such a beautiful and moving distillation of of movement, and I think when I when I first read it, I thought it'd be a little bit kind of firmer or sterner about politics of migration, like that we were gonna look at mm. birds as a very concrete metaphor and it making much more of an assertive 
comment on you know our, our entire history of migratory policy and migration policy yeah, yeah, yeah. in the U.S. or globally. And instead, what the uh, what the essayist does yeah. and what Julia brings to life in her translation is um, she just looks at individual stories that involve the air. You know, the opening one is a story of the uh, man who is featured in the 1990s film uh, is a fly from away who leads a group of geese on their first migration through a self-built propelled plane, basically because he was prohibited from being a pilot because of colorblindness. Wow, and holy moly. When you think about the, the act of innovation and the desire for that, um, that movement, it really comes to life in this. Uh, she writes about, you know, these, uh, you know, the, the kind of spaces of, you know, the, the Turkish migration, the Tur Turkish community in Germany and the history of that and about language coming to light here. And, you know, here Julia came to Providence quite by accident, but you reflected on her own journey from growing up in Brazil to moving to the U.S., to being in New York, to then going to Mexico City, to coming back to the Hudson Valley shortly before September 11th, mm. to then leaving with her family to Switzerland, to then coming back to, well, going to grad school, sorry, undergrad in Scotland, oh to grad gosh. school in Barcelona, Wow. to then going to New York, to coming here, and that journey of basically never really entirely fitting anywhere. And like when you say that, you know, there's gonna be some people who read this and you know, are like, oh, you know, why don't you have a home kind of thing? Or, yeah, you know, yeah, like, yeah. But I think that's the whole point is we have these fixed notions in a lot of ways, um, society really, really tries to reinforce a lot of these ideas of like, well, where are you, where are you from? What right. is your place? What is and the I think, one place that you're from? Right? You know, she's a child journeying through her father's professional career right. and navigating a world and learning language. And I think that comes to life in um, a, a very powerful way that obviously the Pan America jurists uh, found in their awarding of the annual translation prize to her. But anyway, that's that's her story, and I think um, you know, proud to be able to share that through motif. Uh, and I do think that what that surfaces in large is that Providence does have uh, a rather rich and uh, rewarding translation scene here. I think mm -hmm. that there are uh, not only writers but translators, and translators are a, a deeply underappreciated form of writing. Right, you are writing a book, but you're also writing a book in another person's words yet in another language and sometimes in a different alphabet from that original person. Um, and there are so many works around the world that could relate to the stories that we have here and can open up our, our worldview to understand events and, and places, uh, you know, that kind of break from just a foreign correspondent, you know, summation of right. what their interpretation of an event is. Uh, yeah, you know, yeah, sit yeah. in the kitchen with someone who, you know, describes her kitchen and, yeah. uh, you know, that's that's uh, a chance to, to have a different view of a, a place around the world. So one more question. For you. Sure. The art of translation, I think, is really fascinating. Just the art of choosing which word in English that is best going to be moved and best capture the idea. It doesn't even have to be the same word, but mm -hmm. the word that feels most right. You had, you had written about um, choosing a word that was uh, from the Latin. I'm um, forgetting it was she the... shared it was from the Arabic. Yeah, um, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. Julia shared this example that um, in Mariana's original Spanish language text, 
she refers to four words, I think they're all foods, that are Spanish terms that are derived from an Arabic origin. And I think the point there that she makes is, again, the ties between language and histories, right? Like the the period, the Moorish period in Spain, the effect of language lingering, where items have come from. There's a lot wrapped up in those four words, and I think she does a great job. Julia made the point in the translation that those words in their English form do not necessarily carry the same Arabic root. And so what she ended up doing was choosing four different words that accomplished the same, but were not literal translations. Right, and I thought, that's so neat. It's fascinating. And I think, you know, just with language in general, I think um, for people who have been maybe maybe throughout history, I mean, we're in a state where, you know, you have the largest Portuguese and Italian-speaking communities you can find. You have, you know, a vibrant Khmer speaking, you know, Cambodian community, communities here, um, and many other languages that are rich within communities that exist here, that have existed here uh, for many years. And, you know, I think that there's sometimes with language, when, when you are, when English is a secondary language to you, it can feel like your primary language is not as powerful as it actually truly is. And I think sometimes when you have the benefit of being in brought, brought up in a space where you are familiar with the primary language being mostly English here, I think that you can kind of lose sight of the value unless you will and like, kind of open up the act of empathy and understanding how to hear and see in different ways. Mm. But language isn't just about a, a literal translation of putting in the text and getting the exact word. There are places where words don't exist in one language that need to be conveyed. There are degrees of emotion that are conveyed in words. I mean, even as you write and you say like, oh, I've got the right word, this is this is correct, it's accurate. And then if you even look at your English term for it, it's like, well, that, that conveys like a, a softer side of the accuracy. Mm. I want to be harsher. I want to like, mm. anyway, I think the more that we can read translated works and uh, support translators and see them as a, a very just important and kind of equal part of uh, a literary landscape is only a good thing for how we understand the world around us. Incredible. Sean Carlson, thanks so much for coming in. We yeah. appreciate your time. Uh, again, my name is Bradley Vanderstead. This is Motifs Between the Lines. Thank you so much for having me, Bradley. Great to be here. This has been Between the Lines. For more stories like these, we hope you check out the latest issue of Motif Magazine. And stay tuned for our next episode. Thanks for listening.